now invite you to listen to our brother Abel and the subject. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. My beloved brethren and sisters and young people, tonight's address is principally designed for the young people that we have here tonight. If you'll notice in the pattern of our remarks so far, we have been trying to follow through the argument and the theme of the apostle in his letter to the Corinthians. Now sometimes this is rather difficult because a letter is a letter. And since correspondence passed between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians, we have to infer certain things from the remarks he makes to them. And so tonight we're going to slip back by way of review and pick up our context in chapter 4. You'll recall how we mentioned that the Apostle Paul compared himself with the Corinthians. And he said that God had exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Verse 9. But in verse 14 he says, I do not write this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Therefore I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every every ecclesia. Now we have set out here a difference. And I'd like you to focus on the words in verse 15. You have myriads of instructors, says the apostle, but you do not have many fathers in this ecclesia at Corinth. Oh yes, they had those who followed Apostle, who followed Apollos, those who were wise in the wisdom of this world. They had many people prepared to discipline the Corinthians, but they didn't have many fathers. And the word the Apostle chooses here is pedagogi. And it comes in its breakdown from Pais, boy or child, and ago to lead. So they had child leaders at Corinth, but they didn't have many fathers. And the former were like the hirelings, that when they saw the wolf come, they left the sheep and fled for their lives. But a father has an intimate relationship with his son. True, he may have to discipline his son, as the Hebrews were told in chapter 12. And we might look at this passage. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 7. And you'll notice I am reading from the Revised Standard Version. It is for discipline that you have to endure verse 7 of chapter 12. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then are you illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Note, brothers and sisters, his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And we'll see how the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 and chapter 6 applies discipline to this ecclesia at Corinth. So discipline had a useful function when it was administered by a loving father and not as individuals who were as hirelings 
merely pedagogi in the ecclesia. Now the apostle says, Therefore I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Now why should the apostle Paul address Timothy in such terms? Well, when he wrote to the Philippians, he had two examples to to cite in his second uh, chapter of his epistle to the Philippians. He set before the ecclesia at Philippi examples of doing nothing from selfishness or conceit. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in Philippians chapter 2, he first cites the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his second example, in verse 19, comes from Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. Verse 21. They all look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth you know. How is a son with a father? He has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself shall come also. Why is Timothy uh, singled out, brothers and sisters? Because whereas all of the others look to things of their own, Timothy looked to those things that were of Christ Jesus. And so he set forth here as an example. In distinction to these pedagogi, who are mere child trainers, Timothy followed the pattern of the Apostle Paul. He was a father exercising loving concern, even though he had to exercise discipline, to these Corinthians. Now, brethren, how do we in an ecclesia exercise father-like concern, but not merely the concern of a child leader? Well, maybe we can take some examples. Think, for example, of the allegations that were circulating through Corinth. We can imagine some members of that ecclesia getting off with others of a certain clique or a certain faction and saying, the Apostle Paul, I don't think he can uh, really be a legitimate apostle because he isn't even uh, taking support from our ecclesia. And besides that, he's like old Barnabas. He isn't even married. He's not like the other apostles. The Apostle Paul, he's not much of a man. His uh, bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. He prefers to send us letters from Ephesus rather than come over and see us. And he doesn't even let his yea be yea and his nay nay. He tells us he's going to come and then the next thing he says, he's got uh, a wide open door in Ephesus so he stays down there. The Apostle Paul. Hmm, some apostle. Well, we can imagine that that would be a spirit that would permeate, say, the Apollos faction of that ecclesia. But we have an illustration. You know, James wrote in his epistle some very, very searching words in chapter 1, verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is a wise man, and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Now, I think, brothers and sisters, this serves as a very useful test as to whether we are a father in the ecclesia or whether we're merely a child trainer. What is our attitude to gossip, brothers and sisters? Gossip was obviously a problem at Corinth. The factious group were retailing false rumors about the Apostle Paul, and he finally had to go to Corinth to straighten the matter up. Now, if you have the best interests of your brethren at hand. If you recall, the apostle said that each of us was a temple, an inner sanctuary, part of a big building, the oikos. Every member is an inner sanctuary, 
built up into this great building and habitation for the Spirit. But what kind of building are we doing, brothers and sisters? If we're the kind of individual in our ecclesia that trades in gossip, who doesn't really have the best interest of his brethren at stake when he passes his remarks, then we're mere child trainers. We're not fathers to the ecclesia. And so we must look and see what kind of building we're doing. Do we use our speech merely to ventilate our own feelings on an issue, irrespective of whether they're edifying, whether they're constructive? And so in this ecclesia at Corinth, gossip was a problem. And brothers and sisters, we still have the problem with this today. And that's why the Apostle Paul instructed various segments of the Ecclesia when he wrote to the young man Titus. And we might take a look at his words to Titus. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. Bid the older men be temperate. Serious, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Group one. Now the older sisters, he says, bid the older women likewise to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanderers or gossips, malicious in their intent, or slaves to drink. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be sensible, chaste, domestic, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be discredited. Likewise urge the younger men to control themselves. Show yourself in all respects a model of good deeds, of de good deeds, and in your teaching, show integrity, gravity, and sound speech that cannot be censured so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of us. Now, brothers and sisters, I leave with you then the exhortation of the Father in the Ecclesia. When we're tempted to rumor and to engage in malicious slander, that may rightly vent our feelings, ask yourself, does it build the ecclesia? Does it edify my fellow brethren? And think of the words of James. If any man thinks that he's religious and he doesn't bridle his tongue, that man's religion is vain. Can we move on? In chapter 4, the apostle finishes by giving them an alternative. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And now he comes to handle the problems at Corinth, which we'll briefly review as outlined here. Now the chart represents the imagery that the apostle employs in chapter 12 and chapter 14. You are many members of the one Christ body. And then he begins to deal with the problems. Number one, it is actually reported that there is pornea, immorality, among you, of a kind that is not even among pagans. And he goes on to say that this ecclesia was arrogant about this matter. They claim to have wisdom. They claim to have knowledge. And yet they are arrogant about a notorious case of fornication that existed in the Ecclesia. Now the Apostle Paul moves through to tell them, Don't you know, verse 6, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now he's alluding here to the Feast of Unleavened Bread that lasted for seven days at Passover. And they were to cleanse out all the leaven from the dwelling place. And you can imagine the Jews going through the city with the candle, looking for any leaven at the time of Passover. 
And he says to these individuals, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, he says, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Then he makes a general remark. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. Then he goes on to name examples of what he means, of the greedy, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, and uh, robbers. But in chapter 6, he has a problem to deal with. Corinthians, rather than settling their own disputes, brother between brother, just imagine these individuals who have been called. All things are yours, says the apostle. Know ye not that the saints will judge angels, and you're not even capable of settling little disputes in the ecclesia? that you take this matter before the heathen law courts? And so the apostle comes down very, very hard on the Corinthians. But notice his spirit, brothers and sisters, verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that even your own brethren... And he goes to remind these Corinthians that at one time they did these kind of things. But now, he says, you have been washed, verse 11. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The apostle then handles uh, a statement that came in correspondence from them. They were saying, verse 12, all things are lawful for me. And you recall, brethren, that was the problem that the Apostle Paul had to settle when he wrote to the Romans. What shall we say then, says the Apostle? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We're under grace, they said, not under law. Well, why not sin that grace may abound then? God forbid, says the Apostle. How shall we that are dead to sin to our baptism live any longer therein. Same problem at Corinth. All things are lawful for me, said those who were abusing their liberty, verse 12. And notice the apostles' twofold rejoinder. He says, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And secondly, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meat for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will abolish, render obsolete, to reduce to inactivity, that's the significance of the word destroy, both one and the other. Well, they were saying, food's a natural appetite, so is fornication. But the body is not meant for immorality, says the apostle, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So we see here the problems that the apostle uh, has to handle. He has to handle the problem of notorious fornication. And you remember, brothers and sisters, try and put yourself sympathetically in the position of a Corinthian in his time. I mean, there wasn't even a social stigma to fornication in his day. It was thought to have a therapeutic value. And here was the Corinthians with their temple of Aphrodite and the thousand priestesses getting caught. They were washed, sanctified, and justified, and they were going back to their old ways of life. We see how they're abusing their newfound liberty in Christ Jesus. All things are lawful, they were saying, and the apostle rejoins, but all things are not expedient, are not helpful. I'm not going to be enslaved by anything, says the apostle Paul. And he's really picking up there the words of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter had written in, uh, in his epistle that they promised them freedom, says the Apostle in his second chapter, if you want to look it up later. But they promised them, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that is he enslaved or in bondage. 
So this famous liberty of the Corinthians wasn't really liberty um, altogether because they became addicted to the vices of the day. And of whatsoever a man is overcome, says the Apostle Peter, to that he is enslaved. And brothers and sisters and our young people, that's a real good thing to watch when it comes to tobacco. You know, the Apostle says very clearly, whatever, whatever overcomes you, then you become its slave. And besides the fact that tobacco defiles the naos of the living God, that you're the inner sanctuary of God's presence when his word dwells in your heart by faith and you contaminate that holy temple of the Lord when you contaminate your body with the effects of nicotine and also because of its addictive nature. You are slave to one master and whatever overcomes you, to that, says the apostle, you're in bondage. So this liberty that the, that the Corinthians thought they had was really, as the apostle pointed out, a bondage. And so he instructs them, purge out the leaven of wickedness. Get rid of this fornicator. He says, drive out that wicked person. And that's very forthright and uh, very strong language. And you see how the apostle Paul handled the immorality of his day. He told them to avoid fornicators. He says, with, with such a one, no, not even to eat. And to appreciate the force of that comment in his fourth chapter, sorry, in his sixth chapter, you should remember that with the, uh, the memorial service, very often went a, a communal kind of feast. And as we see in chapter 7, the two began to uh, run together. As a matter of fact, in the temple of Aphrodite, they held a feast that was very similar to the memorial service. And so they were to avoid these evil brethren. No, not even to eat with them, lest they should be contaminated. And on the basis of the law, where the law commanded that the adulteress or adulterer was to be stoned, the apostle alludes to this strong language back in Deuteronomy chapter 17 in handling this problem of the fornicator at Corinth. And in verse 7, the apostle alludes, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so ye shall purge the evil from the midst of you. And you can see the purging aspect being employed and driving out that wicked person. You can check out the second passage as well. Now, the apostle points out that, Corinthians, you're really in a divine school. You're in a divine training ground because you're to be the judges of the age to come. And yet you're incapable, unworthy to judge these small matters, brother between brother. So he condemns worldly lawsuits. Why don't you suffer rather to be defrauded, the apostle Paul says than to engage in lawsuits of any kind. And so the apostle condemns permissiveness, prostitution, enslavement, and holds out purity and consecration. Glorify God in your body. And there's one aspect, brothers and sisters, of the apostle's treatment of the fornicator that we'll take some time to look at now because it really bridges our subject tomorrow night. So, can we look in a little more detail at verse 5 of chapter 5? <clears throat> of this wicked person, the apostle said, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now we shouldn't confuse the two terms here. Satan simply means an adversary, good or bad. In this case, it's a good adversary, as we'll see. But the word for devil is not synonymous, because devil means to strike or to pierce through, from dia, bolos in the Greek, to strike or to cast through. 
And so with the individual, there is, as it were, a law, supposing that this represents the person. There's a conflict going on within the person. There is the lust of his flesh, which are urging him to cross over God's line, God's law. And when he crosses that line, he's entered the sin. And so, the diabolos are those forces in the individual that make him want to cross over God's law. And therefore, diabolos is always used in Scripture in an evil sense, that which is wrong, a slanderer who strikes through or pierces, this word is used to describe a slanderer or a false accuser. But here, he's being delivered to Satan, not to the devil, but to Satan. And notice, young people, this is not the fallen angel of the Jehovah Witnesses or the Seventh-day Adventists, because by delivering this man to Satan, what do you do? You destroy the flesh that the spirit may be saved. Now, if it were the devil or the Satan of Orthodox teaching, he'd be just the one not to destroy the flesh, but to activate the flesh, because he's in great rebellion against the Lord God Almighty. And therefore, you have a very good proof text here to illustrate the scriptural use of Satan, an adversary. In this case, the adversary could possibly have a good effect if the person's spirit was saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But what was this Satan? To deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, we know what they did with the wicked person. Verse 13 tells us that. God judges those outside, says the apostle. Drive out the wicked person from among you. So this, oral, this immoral man was disfellowshipped. When he was disfellowshipped, where would he go? Well, he would be turned into the world. Now John says that uh, some went out from among us because they were not of us. Again, you get the aspect of men leaving the ecclesia. But maybe Satan means more in this context than just being turned out to the world. For example, see how the apostle employs it in his second epistle. Verse 7. Now you recall from our talk last night, or the night before, that in the context here the apostle is referring to visions and revelations that he was the person caught away to the third heaven, to paradise, the kingdom age, and saw things which were not lawful for a man to utter. And so in verse 7 he comments, To keep me from being too elated by the abundance of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, reading at verse 7. I'm sorry if I gave you the wrong passage there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And to keep me from being too elated by the abundance of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Now, I originally thought that these Satans must have in the Ecclesia been the Judaizers, because in verse 14, the apostle of the previous chapter alludes to Satan himself, uh, who probably was the arch enemy of the apostle Paul, a deceitful workman who transformed himself into an angel of light, and so I thought there must be, in fact, a connection between these two passages. Maybe these were Judaizers, I thought, that were, in fact, uh, continually dogging the apostle's steps and telling him how he persecuted the ecclesia and what an abortion he was. He didn't even see the Lord Jesus Christ like the apostles did in the first century. Well, that was fine until verse 8. Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it, Greek text, should leave me. So whatever this Satan was, it was an impersonal it. And it would appear to me that in some way this was related to physical suffering for a therapeutic purpose inflicted 
by God's Holy Spirit power. In Galatians chapter 4, you will remember how the Galatians would have plucked their eyes out for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle comments, verse 14 of chapter 4, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me like the Corinthians did, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What has become of the satisfaction you felt? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Now, it would appear to me that there's a connection, that the Apostle Paul, who was in fear and much trembling before the Ecclesia at Corinth, had some kind of malady. Here, it seems that it's linked with failing eyesight or poor eyesight. But whatever it is, it fits a general pattern that we observe in the first century. Now, follow through 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and see how the Holy Spirit in the first century, which divided as he will the Spirit gifts in chapter 12, worked in the first century. Now, recall the background to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. The ecclesia got together to remember their absent Lord. What happened? When they met together, one went ahead of the other. Some were full, others were hungry, and some were drunken. So the apostle says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. What kind of judgment? That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, this is a very interesting passage, brothers and sisters, and it's a rather startling one. Now, some commentators say this was a spiritual kind of sickness that the apostle was describing. But does that really satisfy the context of this passage? That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have fallen asleep, Greek text, but when the apostle uses fallen asleep in chapter 15, what does he mean, brothers and sisters? He means that they had died. Verse 6 of chapter 15. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And the same expression in the Greek occurs here. That is why some have fallen asleep. And then notice the implication. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Who's the real father at the Corinthian Ecclesia? It's God manifested in his Holy Spirit power directly, God manifested himself through the Holy Spirit gifts in spirit-guided men, and God manifest in the Apostle Paul, who was an appendage of the Lord Jesus Christ, an ambassador. Well, this must have been a very awful state of things at the Ecclesia of Corinth. Some were weak, some were ill, and some died because they had confused the sacred with the secular. They'd made the same failure that Uzziah had done. Remember King Uzziah, who arrogated to himself the authority of the priesthood to offer? He combined the kingly and the priestly functions, and he was smitten in his head with leprosy. Think of when Miriam and Moses, Mir Miriam and Aaron, murmured against Moses. Leprosy. 
Think of Gehazi with his uh, avaricious spirit went after Naaman the Syrian looking for wealth. Leprosy overtook him. Think of the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21. Rebellious, murmuring Israelites. And God sent serpents among them and bit them and then he died. And you know, brothers and sisters, even in Acts of the Apostles, we follow the same pattern through. Because you will recall with Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 of Acts of the Apostle, we have the same confrontation with God's Holy Spirit power. Now the context here is that a man, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they had communal living in the first century. They sold some land, but only brought a part of it back and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Latter part of verse 4. How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, says Peter, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear came upon all those who heard of it. Verse 9, But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Hark, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And you can read through. You can read of the account uh, where Elimus, the sorcerer, was smitten blind by the Apostle Paul for a season for his malicious work in stopping the work of the gospel message. So it seems appropriate to me, brothers and sisters, in the first century period, when these brethren had tasted the powers of the age to come, says the Apostle Paul, when they didn't lack in any spiritual gift in this ecclesia, and yet they had taken that memorial service, they had despised the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And so God's Holy Spirit power that could be manifest against a man like Herod to smite him when he arrogated to himself the power of God and he died of worms. That same Holy Spirit power was manifest in the Corinthian ecclesia not for good but for destruction on those who died and as a chastening for those who remained. Now, brothers and sisters, we're uh, very far removed from that period today. We aren't confronted by people with Holy Spirit powers in our ecclesia. But let's see if there isn't some comparison. The writer to the Hebrews says, All things are naked and open with him before we have to do. When we come to remember our absent Lord week after week, when we do our readings and meditation upon his holy principles, we are filling our vessels with his power. And when we come to our ecclesia and our heart is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, our sin may not go beforehand unto God to judgment. Some men's sins, says the apostles, are open beforehand going unto judgment. Others follow afterward. And although God's Holy Spirit power may not be exercised to smite us down, God works through his mighty angels, those chariots of his who are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who are to be heirs of salvation. And brothers and sisters, they guard and keep the way to the tree of life. And when we willingly and knowingly and unrepentantly despise the grace that God has given us, we can only expect chastening and then destruction at the hands of the Lord God Almighty. As Paul said, if any man's work survive, he shall be tried, so as by fire, and receive a reward. But for those that would destroy the oikos of God, his building, him God would destroy. And so I leave with you the application of the work of God's Holy Spirit power in the Corinthian Ecclesia and its antecedents in the first century preaching and back in the history of Israel. Can we move to chapter 6? 
we have a problem here that was raised in the Bible class last night. And one that came up after the discussion period on the talk on, on Tuesday night, on Monday night, rather. Now, the apostle says, reading at verse 2 of chapter 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you know, not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? And most of the problem has come from a reminiscence of the words of Jesus when he said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. And how do we reconcile the two? Jesus saying, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what measure you meet, it shall be meted to you again. And the Apostle Paul here condemning the Corinthians because they hadn't exercised their right judicial decision. Well, let's look at the context, brothers and sisters. Look how they were required to judge. Verse 11. But rather I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of immorality. Now that's usually a sin that goes beforehand unto judgment. The evidence is there. It's clear cut. The only decision is what are we going to do about it. And so the ecclesia is required to judge. But when it comes to the greedy or the covetous individual or an idolater, more objective, a railer or a, re a reviler, more subjective, a drunkard, more objective, or a robber, not quite so objective. I think you can appreciate here that there's going to be differences of decision among those who are required to judge. Yet, nevertheless, they are required to judge. Outsiders, no. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, says the apostle? It is not those outside the ecclesia whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Drive out that wicked person from among you. Well, the ecclesia is required to pass judgment. But here's the difference, brothers and sisters. The ecclesia judges when it has a clear indication from the word that it applies. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has a judge. The word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. And I think all of us feel reticent to apply a judicial decision on an individual that will result in his sorrow or maybe his shame. But we're required scripturally, brothers and sisters, to exercise a scriptural judgment. When the guilt is manifest, the apostle says, you know what to do. Have no company with one who is an idolater, one who is avaricious, greedy, one who is a drunkard, and so on. Now, can I give you an example of where uh, judging is, where the criteria for judging is manifest? You know, in the West Indies, some of the brothers and sisters have been on welfare. And welfare is a system whereby the wealthy ecclesias in Canada and America and elsewhere supply funds to buy dry milk for some of those who are undernourished in the ecclesia. And lo and behold, one day a sister in the ecclesia on welfare begins to come with uh, rather affluent-looking clothing. And it didn't take long, those who were pedagogi and not fathers began to say, aha, we know where welfare money's going. This sister is using money that ought to be employed in providing for her family, and she's buying these fancy clothes. And so the malicious rumors began to flow through the ecclesia. Note, it wasn't a case of an individual going to the individual concerned and saying, you know, are you uh, using welfare funds to buy those clothes? No, that's not usually the way uh, work is handled in the truth. Notwithstanding, we have specific prescription that that's what we ought to do, Usually we consult Brother X or Sister Y or Sister Z. And finally, after it's gone around the meeting, somebody takes the initiative and speaks to the party concerned. And by that time, probably the person's character has been defamed. Anyway, it so happens 
that the individuals concerned were wrong. It wasn't that the sister was misappropriating funds delegated for welfare. It was that someone overseas was sending clothing down to her. And she was wearing these American clothes. The ecclesia became suspicious, but they were wrong. Now, you see, here's an example of where brethren concerned on welfare would, of course, go to the individual and find out the case, find out the facts. In so doing, they would be complying with the scriptural teaching on the subject. But where one commences to engage in malicious gossip, obviously, he's judging with the kind of judgment that Jesus says he will be condemned by in that day when he judges the secrets of men. So again, the lesson, if we have a problem in the Ecclesia, let us employ the scriptural prescription for handling it. Then it's the word that's actifying the judgment, and it's not so much the subjective appraisal that ought to be employed in providing for a family, and she's buying these fancy clothes. And so the malicious rumors began to flow through the Ecclesia. Note, it wasn't a case of an individual going to the individual concerned and saying, you know, are you... Uh, using welfare funds to buy those clothes? No, that's not usually the way uh, work is handled in the truth. Notwithstanding, we have specific prescription that that's what we ought to do. Usually we consult Brother X or Sister Y or Sister Z. And finally, after it's gone around the meeting, somebody takes the initiative and speaks to the party concerned. And by that time, probably the person's character has been defamed. Anyway, it so happens that the individual's concern were wrong. It wasn't that the sister was misappropriating funds delegated for welfare. It was that someone overseas was sending clothing down to her. And she was wearing these American clothes. The ecclesia became suspicious, but they were wrong. Now, you see, here's an example of where brethren concerned on welfare would, of course, go to the individual and find out the case, find out the facts. In so doing, they would be complying with the scriptural teaching on the subject. But where one commences to engage in malicious gossip, obviously he's judging with the kind of judgment that Jesus says he will be condemned by in that day when he judges the secrets of men. So again, the lesson, if we have a problem in the Ecclesia, let us employ the scriptural prescription for handling it. Then it's the word that's actifying the judgment and it's not so much the subjective appraisal of the individual trying to impute the motives when he isn't sure. Brothers and sisters, can we come to chapter 8? We'll look at the background of chapter 8 uh, through the chart that we have here that... Uh, very well expresses the problem of the first century. Now, chapter 8 has to deal with those who uh, would frequent a temple and engage in a sacrificial meal at the temple. Now, this should be distinguished from chapter 10, verse 23 downward, where he's referring to eat, the eating of meats offered in the shambles, the marketplace, the agora of Corinth. Chapter 8 is dealing with individuals, rather than the Ecclesia, who would recline, say, at the temple of Aphrodite. Or they would go uh, and have a feast uh, to my lord Serapis in one of the pagan temples. Now, this is what the Apostle says. He says, you have a strong brother in the Ecclesia, Brother X. Brother X has gnosis. It's a word in the Greek for intellectual knowledge. He knows that meat offered to an idol is nothing because an idol has no real existence. For all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and meat is meat, and whether it's offered to an idol or not doesn't matter. Therefore, he can show his intellectual competence and go to the temple, recline at a table, take meat offered to idols, and yet do so with impunity. Now, Paul says to this man, you're right in principle. You're right in principle because, of course, an idol doesn't have any real existence. But he says that's not the only factor to be, uh, to be worried about here. 
He says, what about uh, your weak brother? He says, how about taking care lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak brother? The weak brother. He's the brother that's been a convert from all the filthy and uh, terrible environment of Corinth to Corinthianize, to fornicate, to enjoy all the lasciviousness of the society. And he's called by Almighty God through the gospel message. And he's washed and he's clean and he's sanctified in the new hope that he has in Christ Jesus. But brothers and sisters, he still has the memories of his past way of life. And here he observed this individual who was strong reclining at a table in the, in the idol's temple and his weak conscience, which was built up in the gospel message, becomes wounded. It becomes weak. And so he, seeing what his strong brother does, uh, goes to the temple. But rather than treating it with impunity, the idol, this brother's conscience is weak. And he begins to regard the meat as part of idol sacrifice. And for him it wounds his weak conscience to go to that temple and to partake of meat offered to idols. Now he's familiar with the idea that the idol has no real technical existence, but the effects of his past life are still manifest in his conscience. And so the liberty of this strong man at Corinth results in the stumbling of this weak man in the same ecclesia. And brothers and sisters, we won't have time tonight, but uh, Lord willing, tomorrow night, we'll take a look at chapter 10 and to see how this strong brother with his epignosis, with his gnosis, who thinks he can come and recline at the idol's temple with impunity, is a man who gets caught in idolatry. That's why the Apostle Paul chooses the examples he does in chapter 10. And so notice the way the Apostle handles this situation. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know, says the Apostle, that all of us possess knowledge. Quite different though, you see, this man's knowledge is technically accurate, but it's a different kind of knowledge than this strong brother has. Knowledge pops up. Love builds up. Again, brothers and sisters, there's the test. If this strong brother really has the truth at heart, he's going to be concerned for his influence upon this weak brother. As he says, uh, if anyone has agape, he's known of God and God knows him. He knows God and God knows him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, says the apostle, that an idol has no real existence. But notice what he points out in verse 6. But there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. This brother doesn't exist because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof to aggrandize his own liberty. He exists for the Lord God Almighty. And therefore, in pleasing the Lord God Almighty, he must take into his considerations the weakness of his brother. Ye that are strong in the faith, says the Apostle Paul, ought to bear the infirmities of those who are weak. So weak and strong alike. We exist for who? We exist for the Lord Jesus Christ. However, not all possess this knowledge, verse 7. But some, being hitherto accustomed to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so he points out to the strong brother, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. But only take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For, he says, supposing someone sees you, a man of knowledge, a strong brother respected in the ecclesia, at a table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, your gnosis, this weak man is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Boy, can't we hear the illusions there. It's better for this man if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were tossed into the sea. And it's interesting, brothers and sisters, the judgment scene given by Jesus in Matthew 25, 
hinges on the relationship of one brother to another. Truly, I say to you, says Jesus, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And if you work through the catalog of uh, events that Jesus sets out in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats, you will find that the whole of that parable hinges on their acceptance or rejection on the basis of the way they treated their fellow brethren. They either stood or fall. Inasmuch as he did it not unto one of the least of these my brethren, he did it not unto me. Therefore, says Paul, if food is a cause of my brother's failing, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to fall. Boy, brothers and sisters, what an exemplary case we have here of a brother who really had the agape spirit of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. A man who was a builder in the ecclesia, not a destroyer. A man who was prepared to let his liberty be judged by another man's conscience. A man who, although he said, a man who plants a vineyard is the first to take the food of it. Who has a, a soldier and doesn't pay him for his work? Well, he says, I'm not going to exercise my liberty lest I could be chargeable to any man. Now, can we, brothers and sisters, to appreciate the full impact of this chapter, transverse a number of years and come to our century? Conscience. What is it? It's a word that occurs time and time and time again in the Apostles' Exposition. Conscience. Sunny dasis. It comes from sun, which means with, and oida, to know. Hence, together, perceive. And you recall from one of our other lectures that we made a distinction between ginosis, intellectual cogitation and reasoning about something, and oida, knowledge obtained through the senses. And uh, you remember that Plato, in our illustration, noticed that if you see uh, a stick placed in water, it appears to bend. That's oida, knowledge received from sense perceptions. But he says we uh, take the stick out and we see that it isn't bent. And so from our other uh, senses, we genosis. We intellectually arrive at a conclusion. And so the distinction between oida, sense knowledge, perception, and gnosis, usually the intellectual kind of conclusion you come to from reasoning. But let's, brothers and sisters, take the whole of the setting of 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and through in chapter 9 and back in chapter 6 and put it in the position of the conscience of a young sister here and today in Adelaide, Australia. Or, sorry, Melbourne, Australia. <clears throat> What is the conscience? Well, the conscience has a wide range for many people. It's the sense of oughtness or rightness about the kind of decisions that we make. But you well know, for the one individual, uh, conscience is a very accommodating uh, sort of a comfort that he has. He can do nearly anything and his conscience never bothers him. He's the individual that has the accommodating kind of conscience. The apostle uses stronger words. He says, their conscience is seared with a red-hot iron. It's hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And brothers and sisters, I don't know what is a more sorry state of humanity than when God gives one up. Romans chapter 1. God gave them up. Men with hearts that had been seared, as it were, with a hot iron. They no longer had a conscience that was malleable to the divine precepts. Now, take, for example, the dress of a young sister. Now, I'm not making any particular reference to any young sisters. Let's take a generalized sister. She wants to know how I ought to dress as a Christadelphian young sister. Now, these are all the influences that are going to work on her conscience to determine the oughtness and the rightness 
of her decisions. Now, she can, of course, have a very oversensitive conscience, a morbidly introspective conscience, which doesn't happen very often today, but it could be. Well, what factors are going to influence her decisions? Well, she's going to think, firstly, first of all, what are school chums wear? You know, what kind of fashions are they wearing? This is going to affect her conscience. Well, her reading material is going to affect her conscience. If she attends some of the libraries in Canada, we can be pretty sure what kind of reading material this is going to be. It's going to be the kind of romantic novels, women's magazines, and so on of Canada that aren't going to abet her or encourage her in the ways of what her scriptural background might dictate. But these are forces acting upon her conscience. Her reading material. What does she read at night behind the pillow with mom and dad are going to sleep? That's going to affect her conscience just as much as that of mom sitting down and reading the Bible with her. Maybe more. And what about her gnosis? What about her intellectual reasoning? Is she the kind of one that says, well, I know... Uh, Sister Y in the Ecclesia, and she knows her Bible pretty good, and after all, look where her skirt is. You know, I can't see why. I can't, uh, you know, be like her. She's pretty smart in the truth. Why can't I follow her? Projection. It isn't the case of what Sister Y does or Sister Z. It's one what one what ought to do on the basis of her scriptural background. And so she might resort to projection. Or other defense mechanisms like rationalize and say, well, we have to move with the times and we can't all be like the Victorians and like the Amish Mennonites. We have to move with the times. Rationalization, defense mechanisms, projection, all influence her conscience. Then she has the ecclesial conscience. And if she's like most young people, she'll probably want to see how close she can come to the outer margin and still be within the ecclesial conscience the sanction and respect that she has for those who are older than her in the Ecclesia. But her background's going to be influential here. What's her reading material been like, for example? Has she been tutored in the instruction that comes from a daily, habitual drinking at the Word of Life? Is her addiction to the Word of God? If it is, look at the effects. It's able to save you. It's able to work effectually in those who believe. It's the implanted word. Wherewithal shall a young sister cleanse her ways? By giving heed thereto according to the word. What does God look for in a sister? The meek and the quiet spirit, which is a pearl of great price. What does he look for in older sisters? That they, by your chaste conversation or behavior, might be saved without the word. And so you see, if she's drunk well in her home background at the word of life, then obviously she's going to bring to bear in her conscience the whole weight of the word of God. But if instead of the readings, uh, TV comes on because there's a special on tonight and uh, the readings get left behind, or maybe dad and mom don't insist that the readings be done, and it's left up to the children. And as a result, readings are only spasmodically done. What kind of fear of the Lord exists in this home? If there's a fear of the Lord, then she has a set of principles that Corinthians refers to. Although the Holy Spirit may not work in her ecclesia, she knows that wherever she goes, she's under the influence of God Almighty, because he, through his angels, knows all and sees all. They're his watchers. They are the eyes of the Lord that run to and fro throughout the earth. Well, brothers and sisters, you get the picture. There are other, more subtle factors. What kind of dress do I wear that has a saleability value on the date market? Pretty important question to our sisters. What kind of standards do our brothers uh, accept on their dates? Now, we know for sure, young fellas, what comes naturally to us. It's the short skirt and the low neckline. That comes best to the natural man but what kind of standards are we employing when it comes to this kind of subject? It's like what young fella, one young fellow said. He said, uh, well, Ron, he says, uh, we're having kind of a frank talk just with the fellows. He says, I go as far as the girl lets me. Well, what a cowardly shifting of responsibility that is. A fellow who's expected to be a spiritual head in the ecclesia 
one to whom his future wife could go home and ask questions of, is a man who says, I go as far as she lets me. Well, you see what kind of a conscience he's got. It's very comfortably accommodating. But when we have a conscience that's the together perceive, based principally upon the word, and the kind of instruction we get from the ecclesial conscience, we can begin to perceive how we're going to act more in keeping with the principles of God's holy word. And brothers and sisters, and I address this specifically to the sisters, think about where your conscience rests. Maybe you think you have a liberty to dress the way you like. But what about the other sisters who look up to you? Supposing you're the kind of sister who is a peer, a close associate of another sister, and your liberty becomes a stumbling block to another sister. You may never know about that, but the Lord Jesus Christ does. And surely, brothers and sisters, if we're employing the principles of Corinthians, we're going to bend over backwards not to give any offense. If we want to err anyway, brothers and sisters, let us err on the side of conservativeness that we not put in anybody's way a stone of stumbling. If our young sisters knew how easy it was for us to do a deep study of the word and then take a walk down the beach and see what a catastrophic fall can occur in a few minutes, they would be a lot more respectful of the kind of influence they have when they come to the oikos of a living God. And so I leave with our young sisters the admonishment and the appeal of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Whatever liberty you think you have by right as a sister, don't make it be a cause of stumbling to other sisters. And remember that if the brothers are to treat you with all purity, as they're commanded to do, then dress in keeping with those principles that the apostle outlines.